Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Okay, we're in Luke chapter 19. Uh, for context, um, chapter 18 starts off with just the chapter before this one. Always pray to grow your faith. If you want to grow your faith, start praying more. That is actually the practice of faith because you believe there's a God there when you pray to him. So it actually is a persistence that Jesus asked for, like the widow, verses 9 through 11. Don't pray to yourself. Don't pray. Pray like a sinner. God, be merciful to me. Come with humility. Verses 18 to 26. The rich ruler shows up, he comes proud, he leaves sorrowful. Verses 27 to 30, it is possible to be saved, but guys like this, it's tougher than a camel to get through the eye of a needle. Um, which is, Jesus then is going to continue to be introduced to characters that show us what it looks like to be, what the word is saved. What are we saved from? We're saved from separation from God for all of eternity because of our sins and our choices. So God comes in. He gives himself as a sacrifice for that. And if you follow after that, you will be welcomed into heaven. So the 35 through 43 has the story of the blind man. Y'all tracking with me? Blind man shows up. He has absolutely nothing, but he leaves joyful and happy. So you got this contrast between the rich man that leaves sorrowful and the poor man who leaves joyful. And so clearly it's easy for him to get into heaven. And then, again, the first word of chapter 19 is then. It's connected to those two stories. So we're going to see a little bit more detail because lots of different people can be introduced to Jesus Christ. Not all of them get into that kingdom of heaven. So you see this, this then there. Jesus entered and then he passed through Jericho. So last week I missed this wonderful opportunity. When you see the name of a town pointed out in the New Testament, one thing is interesting to do is go back to the Old Testament and go, okay, what happened in that town? in the Old Testament. Why is that an important note for Luke to note that city? There is a multitude of people following Jesus. We know from Josephus that on this particular year, AD 33, Passover that year, according to Josephus, had three million travelers coming into Jerusalem. So we're not, don't picture a small crowd like you see on TV Jesus or movie Jesus. We're not talking a couple thousand. There could be tens of thousands of people following this very popular miracle-working rabbi from the, from the country as he walks to Jerusalem for Passover. So the crowd is huge, massive. And as they're coming in and through Jericho, I think it's interesting that it says he entered and passed through, right? So Jericho in 1835 is mentioned as a suburb of Jerusalem. We're only about 10 miles away. He's within spitting distance of Jerusalem. This is his last major stop before he gets to the city at the end of chapter 19. Um, we see a typology of Jesus as he's arriving. Jericho is a key place where Yahshua, literally in the Hebrew is Yeshua, which is the name Jesus in the Greek. Joshua goes into Jer Jericho. Um, the way he goes into Jericho, though, is interesting. First, he walks around a lot. And Jesus has been walking around for three years. And, he, and what he, they do when they walk around, J Joshua, instead of getting an army to charge the gates, 
He gets an army of priests to sing his praises. They walk in silence, just following and obeying God in silence, minding their own business as they walk around this city. Moses camped across the river. Yeshua, Joshua comes in and he moves into this place, which is the end of the wilderness for God's people. Jesus does the same thing. God's people have once again found themselves in a wilderness. They got Pharisees that care more about religion than faith. They, get, they care more about lining their own pockets than they do about serving people and helping people. They care more about themselves than they care about others. And spiritually, they've once again come to a wilderness place. Then Jesus shows up. Yeshua shows up. And he starts teaching them a clarity of mind. We're here to serve God. It doesn't matter what other people think. We're here to serve God. That's an all-in proposition. And in Joshua 5, a man shows up to Joshua. And I want to read this text. Um, It's a messenger, a man, but notice that the man accepts the worship of Joshua. In other words, when they're walking up to the city of Jericho, a spiritual being shows up in an incarnate form and accepts the worship of God's people. This is God incarnate because angels don't accept worship. We see that in multiple places. But God does accept the worship. So in Joshua 5.13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and he looked and behold, a man stood opposite to him. Not a, not a fluffy being. A, there's an incarnate being in front of him. And his sword is drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Nothing about this guy said miraculous angel with halo around him. Like he's thinking it's just a dude with a sword. And he's walking up going, are you from Jericho or are you from our camp? So he said, no. (laughs) But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face at the word of this person. Joshua falls on his face and worships him and says, what does my Lord say to his servant? I don't know about you, but I don't just bow when people talk to me. Something about the word of this man stood out to a commander Joshua with absolute total authority and power. That has not been happening with Jesus. On the road to Jerusalem, he has had conflict. He has had people challenge him. He has had Pharisees that think that they're more holy than he is. He's been accused of things as he's made this trip. And Joshua says, what does my Lord say to his servant? Immediately puts himself in that position. What has happened to the Israelites? First time they go in and through Jericho, there's an absolute recognition of the Messiah. Then the commander of the Lord's army says to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Where was that place? Where was that dirt that they were standing on that was declared holy? And why was it declared holy? Joshua 6, 2, and the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand, its king and its mighty men of valor. And you guys know the rest of the story, right? March around the city, walls fall down, they walk right up into Jericho, no problems. This worshiped incarnate commander of the Lord's army says he's given them a kingdom and he's handed them a kingdom. Jesus is doing the exact same thing spiritually. He's been walking around for three years saying, I'm giving you a kingdom. And he marches them all around Israel and he takes territory in the form of soul after soul after soul as he does it. So you look at the book of Joshua and it becomes a typology of what Jesus has been doing in the spirit. 
All you have to do is follow Jesus' direction, praise his name, blow the trumpets, and at the end of the day, cheer, and the walls are going to come down. So Joshua 6, 5, all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the end result of following after Jesus is actually joy. There's a, a peace that comes about them. So as Jesus goes in and through Jericho, this has to be kind of a deja vu moment. He's been here before. He's walked this soil before. It's not new for him. And he's saying the exact same thing now. Here's a kingdom. God has all the power. All you have to do is follow and glorify the Lord. Same plan. And so he's saying the same thing to humanity. We're to march around our spiritual cities in the name of Jesus, and Jesus will break down walls. We walk through our life, and God does everything else. We trust in the Lord first. We follow him even unto a cross. We die to this world. We live for Jesus. And people prefer to live for themselves versus that plan. That's the, that's the question. Do you live for yourself or do you live for Jesus? Which of the two is going to be your predisposition for the rest of your days? If people stop remembering God's word, if they stop reading God's word, they won't remember that this is what God says. And when people don't remember what God actually says, we're open to anybody telling us what God's all about. And you guys spend two minutes on YouTube, TikTok, X, Instagram, and you know that the world is perfectly happy to tell us all about the Bible without reading a word of it. In fact, listen to this. Christian Post Barna poll results, two-thirds of America said agree to the statement that it really doesn't matter what faith you follow. It's not Jesus in particular that will get you to heaven. Two-thirds of Americans. We're in the minority at this point because I, I hope we would disagree with that. 44% of Protestants, 70% of Catholics, 41% of Evangelicals believe that you can earn your salvation by being or doing good things. It's the exact opposite of the rich man from last week. You can't. 59% of Bible-believing Christians claim that the Bible is not God's authoritative and true word anymore. When people stop reading it, they're open to any kind of sucker punch because they're being, they're, they're being led by whatever wave or breeze blows through their culture. I wonder if they can actually name any of the faulty spots in the word of God that they claim are there. Can you actually name one? right? That isn't maybe a, a clearly explainable, like scripting kind of thing. Can you even find one flaw? 40 authors, 66 books and letters. Can you find one disagreement or did they come up like one person speaking with the same voice? In other words, they're actually translating what a single being is, is sending and messaging through them, through the histories, through the poetry, through the prophecy, through um, the, the, the Torah and the law. One spirit behind all of that. Different genres, different formats. Like God was saying, test me in these things and see if you can find a mistake. And, you, and, and, and the Bible's received more scrutiny than any other book in history. There's an illusionary truth effect right? This is something the Nazis figured out. If you repeat something that's a lie enough times, people will believe it even though it's a lie. All you got to do is say there's mistakes in the Bible. All you have to do is say there's multiple paths to heaven. All you have to do is say that you can earn your salvation by being a good person. And if you say it enough times, fools will believe it. And even very intelligent people, you say it enough times, they'll say it. In fact, one research shows all you got to do is say it seven times. And it becomes divine perfection for people. 
It's amazing how far we've fallen. And then you get Zacchaeus, right? So verse one, I know that was a huge setup. (laughs) Verse one, then Jesus enters and passes through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Can't get the Sunday school song out of my head. The word Zacchaeus means pure. That's an ironic name. He's pure because he's both a chief sinner <laughs> in chapter 18, 13, and, you know, and rich, chapter 18, 23, you have this combination of features. He's a, both a tax, he's not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. He's the one that trains people in on how to rip people off. The, he's the worst of the worst. He's the head of the traitors. Jesus has met one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now he's meeting the rulers of the traitorous Jewish tax collectors that make their money by take, collecting what they need for Rome and then gathering whatever else they can. So the fact that his name means pure had to just grate people the wrong way. And and Luke adds that he's rich. So remember from 18, we just got done talking about a rich tax collector or a a rich young ruler, but now we have a rich tax collector. He's the worst of both worlds. He's played the game for gain. He's done legal theft. He's used the law to tie people in knots. Surely this guy's doomed. So he has a name like Pure, but there is no chance for this. He's a combination of all the other characters and all the problems you have. If he were blind, it would be a combination of all four. Oh, but wait. <laughs> Luke says, the things which are impossible with men are possible from God. We know that. That's been the teaching. And the fact that he sought to see is an interesting feature. It's just like the last story. He doesn't start with purity, but he does start with a desire to see Jesus. And both the physically blind man and Zacchaeus, their problem is they can't see Jesus with their eyes. That's the same problem we have today. None of us can see Jesus with our eyes. That's where we all start. And what's interesting is like the last story, this limitation is something he's born with. He's born with an inability to see Jesus. I feel sorry for people when they honestly can't see the goodness in the law, the holiness of God. And they construct a Jesus that really doesn't look like what you see in the Word of God. The fact that he was of short stature, he literally comes up short is the wording there. Um, It is beyond him to see. Um, He's found a way to get rich in life, even though he's short. A lot of people believe maybe he's a midget. I don't, to me that doesn't matter. The point is, he's not, he's like my wife. He's not tall enough to see over a decent crowd, right? So... And the thing that's similar about him, the blind man just has to shout out with his voice. Zacchaeus has his legs at least, and he goes pursuing after Jesus. It's the only thing he can do is go after Jesus, call out for Jesus. So he runs ahead, verse 4. This is a strategy. He goes out of his way to get ahead of things. That's not unlike what it would take to be a chief tax collector. There's a personality type that thinks of the problem and thinks of a solution to it. And that's done really well by this guy. And he climbs up into a sycamore tree. Sycamore trees are big trees, low branches, easy to climb. Even a child can climb a sycamore tree. It's like a pine with a pine tree with low branches, but a hardwood. Not typical, 
and not dignified. You don't see a lot of adults climbing trees unless they got kids begging them to do it. You really don't see rich people climbing trees. You really don't see rich tax collector at like IRS audit accountant types climbing trees. So what is he doing humility and pride wise? He's becoming like a child, chapter 18, verse 17. He doesn't care what people think. He's just willing to humble himself. He's excited to see Jesus and he doesn't care what people think. Just like the last story, different details, same principles. He has nothing. He comes in need, irregardless of social norms. He is going to find or get Jesus's attention, just like the blind man does. But the blind man and Zacchaeus are very different in some ways too. They, They want an encounter with somebody and they both want to enter the kingdom of God. I think the blind man's asking for his sight. Zacchaeus is at least aware of the problem isn't his sight, it's his spiritual sight. He wants to get this whole kingdom of God thing. Verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and he came down and he received him joyfully. I don't, when I meet a total stranger, if they're like, hey, Sean, I have to come to your house today. Like he, Jesus invites himself over with a total stranger. Gives you a little insight into the character of Jesus. Um, he, Jesus looks up and sees Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is actually, you could say, on a high horse. And the thing he has to do to meet Jesus, now that he's got Jesus' attention, he has to get himself off out of the tree. He has to lower himself. He has to humble himself. So this drives hope that Jesus sees him. I, I like the fact that if you want to be seen by Jesus, you call out like the last person, or you get yourself in the right position, come into church. Jesus says he'll meet you, he'll find you, he'll speak to you. So Zacchaeus knows, he knows Zacchaeus by name. I don't know if that's a miracle or Zacchaeus is just a famous person. He's the ruler of the tax collectors. He's just known, right? When Jesus says his name, I don't know about you, but in the, in the audible part, how would he say his name? Hey, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. Most everyone that Zacchaeus knows would say his name something like Zacchaeus. It would have been a curse word in their mouth. But with our Lord, our name is not a curse word. It's an invitation. And I have a feeling that when Zacchaeus hears Jesus say his name like that, with one word, Jesus changes the tone of the relationship from what Zacchaeus was probably expecting from his Lord. He's expecting accusation. He's expecting Jesus to tell him to stop being a tax collector. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. He just says, let's have dinner. Let's eat together. I, in fact, I must come to your house for dinner. Jericho is like a rich suburb of Jerusalem at this point in history. Most of the synagogue rulers, even the synagogue rulers in Jerusalem, lived out in the suburb 10 miles away. And they'd ride their little donkeys back and forth to the town. Jericho, Jericho, the city of Palms, was full of rich people. And this is the one rich person that probably had no honor, no reputation. He would have been the, the scuzzy rich guy that everybody hated living in town. And Jesus says, I want to come to your house to eat. So he tells him to come down. He tells him to make haste. There's a call for immediacy. And I think Jesus gives us that call too. Don't wait on this decision. Figure it out. Don't delay. Do it right now. If the Spirit calls, we go. And we move quickly. And, I, and we've seen that in our fellowship a little bit. People are like, you know, I got a thought that's come into my head about what I need to do next spiritually. And, and I've seen people do it. And it's really fun to watch. Who cares what anyone thinks? What your proud reputation needs gets buried. 
I don't, I don't need anything from anybody else. What I need is Jesus Christ. It would be hard for a rich man to do this. Lower himself, make haste for another person, act like a servant by hosting that person, but it's not impossible. And what we see in Zacchaeus is somebody who, where it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven, he humbles himself, he lowers himself, and he, and he brings Jesus into his life. Literally brings Jesus into his home. So Jesus says, I must stay at your house, which I love the fact that Jesus invites himself over. That said, I don't think Jesus would go to his house if Zacchaeus said no. I think Jesus is a gentleman. I think this is a friendly, colloquial way to be like, hey, Tom, I have to come see your thing. I have to go out and play pool with you at some point in my life or it won't be complete. Grant, I need to get into a truck with you and have you, you know, and just those ideas that there's a tone of intimacy here. The word must is an emphatic word in the Greek. It is the tone that one would use with a longtime friend as though they've known each other forever. Spiritually, you wonder if that's the case, if that's why Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus. He's felt that spirit for a very long time. And it tells us a little bit about evangelism, right? When we meet people, it's like we've known them forever. There's just this comfort with people. So the must is not an event. It's a one-time deal. It's an invitation. It has to happen. You want to get closer to Jesus, you must invite him into your life. So Jesus takes the outcast and he calls him and treats him like a friend. Not just to preach at him, but to build a relationship with him, to spend time and talk all night. You don't just eat dinner with somebody. You hang out all night with them because he's staying there too. It fits the image of salvation. There is no salvation without Christ. It's, a, it's an imperative. So Christians love adding another outcast into their crew. That's the kingdom of God. How did the disciples feel about this guy getting added? I'm thinking they were okay with it because they've already got used to Matthew. Well, if Matthew can be a godly person and serve Jesus, maybe Zacchaeus can too. Maybe we can, the top guy can do it. So I think there's this idea that you're not just inviting Jesus over, you're probably inviting at least a couple of his buddies to come too. But Zacchaeus can handle it. Where the first man goes away sorrowful, this man makes haste and comes down to meet Jesus. He's happy to do it. No indecision. The urgency, the lack of hesitation, the invitation and the reception of it, that's the ticket. That's the way into the kingdom of heaven. And he receives him joyfully. Pick up that at the end of verse 6. He, Zacchaeus, receives Jesus joyfully. No sorrow whatsoever. The opposite word of what was used with the rich man. He receives Jesus. He comes into his heart, comes into his home. And Jesus says, I'm coming over. And Zacchaeus says, yes, and joyfully gets set up and ready to go. Honey, we got Jesus coming over if he's married. Right? We got to get ready. If he's not married, could be the case. He's getting things ready and chopping carrots and mixing the soup up and getting the best tablecloth out, pulling out the china. It's time to treat Jesus to dinner. Zacchaeus is joyful and so is Jesus. It's like the meeting of old friends. That's evangelism, you guys. That's what it's like when we meet a stranger and we bring them into our life. And those of us that exhibit that more like Jesus are going to have more success embracing people and bringing them into the kingdom. It's important here. And I, I want to point this out because we've had these talks over lunch. Zacchaeus never accepts an idea. He follows a person. Zacchaeus never embraces a theological or doctrinal point or argument. It never happens. There's nothing here for him to receive Jesus. He receives a person, 
not a set of ideas. Now that person comes with ideas, but it's far more important for people to accept and honor the name of Jesus than it is to obey a creed or a religious practice or a ceremony. And all of those things go to the side. The relationship with Jesus is the key. That is the salvation. Seek Jesus, humble yourself, invite him into your life without delay, without regard for what other people think of, bring him into your home and do it with joy. That's the pattern we see with Zacchaeus. You take all those verbs together and then you get the crowd, verse 7. But when they saw it, this is the multitude, they all complained saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. All they can see is who the guy is. And this is the problem. This is why Christians get a bad name. We judge the sin, and we don't welcome the sinner. And I'm not saying you welcome the sin and embrace their sin. That's going on too. That's the opposite error. But Jesus clearly loves the person, and he never says the sin is okay. And they complain, the fact that they all complain, not just the Pharisees, but the crowd. Jesus has got this group of people that don't know quite what to do with them. And complaining itself, complaining is just a curse. It's not helpful. It's self-gratifying. Often people complain in groups. They often complain about things that aren't their domain. They're none of their business. That's how my grandma would say it. Jesus has accepted Zacchaeus. He's not accepted the sin. And he does, he does that because it, he doesn't want the sin to dictate the relationship. He wants to actually show Zacchaeus how to live in holiness, righteousness, and purity. So to do that, he has to make a friendship with him to start with. No discussions so far. Just, hey, I see you. I'm coming over to your house for dinner. Zacchaeus says yes, joyfully. The simplicity of it confounds the human mind. We can build a relationship, we can show hospitality, and we can do it without affirming someone's sin. We can welcome people with joy. And that's confounding to the people that have sin because they think you're rejecting them and judging them because their conscience is doing that to themselves. So when you counteract that by not doing those things, they don't know what to do with you or Jesus. Verse 8, again, seven's just like a side note for Luke. It doesn't change anything with Jesus' behavior, and it doesn't change Zacchaeus' behavior. The crowd simply doesn't matter. And it didn't matter with the blind man either. Then Zacchaeus stood, and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I've given half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I'll restore it fourfold. Interesting. One of, what, is Zacchaeus responding to the complaining here? Is he doing this to prove something to the crowd? I don't think so. I think he's ignoring it because he says to the Lord what he's going to do. He's not really talking to the crowd. He's already accepted following Jesus. And at some level, he does, he volunteers to do what the rich man said, what do I need to do to enter the kingdom? And Jesus says, you got to give everything away. Jesus never says that to Zacchaeus, but because he's accepted Jesus, the sin needs to get out of there. And again, he doesn't give everything away, but half of his goods going to the poor, that's, okay, 50% gone, right? What happens to the other 50%? Anything from anyone by false accusation. Folks, that would be the entire crowd. He's the ruler of tax collectors. He has ripped off everyone. So his collective wealth is chopped in half for the poor. The half that's left will be, if he's giving back fourfold everything he stole, 
he's going to be broke. He's going to need to take years of income to pay that fourfold. He's basically impoverishing himself because he sees the need to do it. And here's the other thing, beautiful thing about Zacchaeus. The way he handles money, the money just doesn't matter to him. So Zacchaeus stood. They've already been sitting down to eat. They've been talking for a bit. The Mr. Zacchaeus, the pure one, feels the need to balance the scales. And he's convicted that he has to make things light. So, right, so he says, look, Lord. It's a particular use of this word. He calls the Jesus Lord. And Luke doesn't do that very much. He does it when it's an important thing. Between the tree and sitting down to eat, at some point Zacchaeus says Jesus is his Lord. And he's humbled himself not to be a ruler, but to be a servant in the kingdom of God. He's humbled himself. And then he, he isn't tied to the money at all. When, I'm humbled, when I've humbled myself to Jesus, there's nothing of this world that really compares. So I let it all go. Who cares? To give all of these things. I give half is in the present tense. It's like he's doing it as a response to meeting Jesus. And he lets it all go. And, and frankly, to, to let go of those things like that, it's freedom for this guy. The world tells you you have to cling to everything. Jesus tells you cling to me, and then everything else you just let go of because you want to put your grip on Jesus. If I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, that phrase in the English is one word in the Greek. Psychophanteo. And the literal translation of it is fig show. And again, if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, fig show. And what fig show meant was this. In ancient Greece, there were agents, tax collectors that supported the government, and they would go around and watch the gates. And they would look at merchants coming in and out of Athens, of which figs are one of the major merchant things, and they would tattle on anybody that was exporting figs out of Athens. And then the government would pay them for their tattletaling. And the only way to stop this, if you're a merchant, is that you could pay them off more than the government was paying them off. So it became a bribery scam. So it, it, basically, you would come walk up to somebody and say, are those figs? They'd say, yes. I'm going to tattle on you, or you're going to pay me off. And it was this word or phrase in the first century that is exactly what Roman tax collectors were doing. They were going to people saying, you can pay me what, what's here, or you can pay me a little extra and I'll give you a little kickback and we'll just play this game. Uh, it is where we get the English word sycophant, someone that's going to rip somebody off with the government and the law behind them. It's a government leech. And there's no record of Jesus ever pointing this out to Zacchaeus, but he's taking his sin and he's letting it go. That's exactly what's happening here. And for every person, there's that thing that keeps them from Jesus. And when you've humbled yourself to Jesus and you've had that relationship, it's easy to let that go. The love for Jesus motivates the rejection of sin. It's not the other way around. You can't convince people that they need to get rid of their sin and then they're just going to up and do it. There has to be a love that pushes the sin out. And the adoration for Jesus is what causes Zacchaeus to do this. So he's been forgiven. He's been treated like a brother by Jesus. He's been restored back to the table with Jesus. He's been loved on. He's seen how the brothers love one another and the sisters. And then he thinks, I'm a sinner and I'm doomed. I'm past redemption. But this Jesus says, I'm not past redemption. I can actually come into the kingdom. So 
he changes from being a slave to sin on his way to the grave to being freed, accepted, and lives up to his name, purified. I want to live like that. I want to live in such a way that I can let go of anything but Jesus. And that's going to motivate my heart to change. So this is a complete 180 from yesterday from Zacchaeus. Yesterday, Zacchaeus was ripping people off. And today, he's done with that. He's free to go a new way and follow Jesus. You're going to be hitched to some sort of wagon. It might as well be Jesus. In verse 9, and Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house. Like, again, how much clearer can Luke make this for us? Salvation is almost impossible, but by God, all things are possible. It's hard for a rich man to get into the king of heaven like a camel is through an eye of a needle. But this guy, today, this is what that looks like. Today, salvation has come to this house. And again, he hasn't done any of the works he promised to do yet. He's saying, look, Jesus, this is what I'm going to do. And Jesus is like, today, salvation has come. It's not the works that are going to save you, Zacchaeus. It's your heart that saves you. Because he is also a son of Abraham, he's an Israelite, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Remember he told the, the story of the sheep? What kind of shepherd wouldn't go after the lost sheep? Who would Jesus be if he didn't go after people that were lost? Now turn that around. If you're a servant of Jesus, who are you if you're not targeting somebody right now? If you're not going after somebody's heart right now, if there's not one soul that you're praying for every day, how, how are you following Jesus if what he does is goes after lost sheep? If you're saved and you've found that relationship with Jesus, who are you praying for? And at the beginning of the last chapter, you should be praying without ceasing. What kind of prayer should we have? We should have at least one person in our life we are just targeting for. And God bless the grandmas because they pray for whole sets of grandkids every single day. Right? This is what they do. So Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Assurance of salvation. Also, there's a personification here. Salvation is being referenced as a son of Abraham. Salvation has come through the Jewish people in Jesus Christ. Salvation is. So because he is also a son of Abraham, the key there is salvation. He's personifying it. Right? To him, to this house, it's also personal. He doesn't say to your house. He's not talking to Zacchaeus here. He says to this house. He's talking to the crowd. This is what salvation looks like, you guys. Salvation just came to this house. The other way he could be using the word salvation here is that he's treating himself as the salvation that just walked in the door. When Zacchaeus let me into his life, he let salvation into his life. We don't earn salvation. Jesus is salvation. This is a true Jewish concept. This is the idea of what's going on here. To seek and save the lost is the heart of the law. It's the heart of all judgment through the Old Testament. It's the heart of God with his people. It's the heart of God with Gentiles that come to live with his people. And it's the heart of Jesus. Zacchaeus starts by seeking Jesus, but Jesus is the one that spots him brings him in and comes to have dinner at his house. Jesus didn't come to condemn this time around. We're already lost. We're already condemned. He doesn't need to condemn. What he's come to do is seek and save the lost. Blind man, Zacchaeus, short man, both of them can't see spiritually. We are unable to see Jesus today, but the invitation is still pending and the joy is still waiting. 
The invitation of Jesus isn't, can you see me? The invitation of Jesus is, can you get past yourself long enough to see Jesus? Can you get your own pride out of the way, come down quickly, humble yourself so that you can welcome Jesus into your life? And the image of Zacchaeus here is an image for all of us. The only thing that's getting in your way is yourself, the crowd, and the enemies, uh, the spiritual enemies that are out there. Can you ignore the crowd long enough to get brought into the family? Can you just stop caring about what people think about you for two seconds? So we get a chance to fellowship every week. I want to highlight this. Most people in this world do not get the fellowship of Steph's cooking and Megan's cooking and Bonnie's cooking and Danny's cooking every single week. Think of that as a blessing, you guys. Most people don't get fellowship. Most people go in, they hear a short message and they leave and they're back on their own. My goodness, it's like going, joining the army and getting a three-minute boot camp and handed a weapon and not told how to use it. And then put them on the battlefield. They're fending against the world and the crowd all by themselves. They have no help. Most people in the world do not have the kind of fellowship that we have. So what happens when you take a rock and it, what happens to lava when it leaves the volcano? It gets hard. It turns into obsidian. Rocks, however, when you put them from the world, cold and hard, and you throw them into a volcano where the heat is, they melt. And everything gets melted into that pot. What happens to a Christian when we're separated from God, the true heat and purity of this world? We get hard and cold. We become sinners. What happens when you take a lost sinner and you dump them back in to the fellowship of the saints? It's just a matter of time, you guys, before that hard heart melts and it just gets back into the body where we were meant to be. When we get close to the spirit, the flame itself melts our hearts and that's the, what the fellowship is. As they heard these things, this is an ongoing teaching, we should note in verse 11, now, as they heard these things, again, still tied to the same concept of salvation, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. They're thinking when he goes into Jerusalem, the battle's on with the Romans. They're thinking a physical earthly kingdom. There's an expectation that they have about Jesus, like sinners can't be saved. But now there's an expectation about Jesus as to when the warrior Messiah shows up. So he has to clarify that. He's not coming like King David to kill the Philistines. The Romans are not going to get killed in a great revolt. Verse 12, therefore, he says, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and return. And so he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minus, and said to them, do business till I come. This is an interesting parable. Again, Luke has a few of these. It's a fairly standard practice in Rome. If you're a rich person, you're a noble person, you got to go to Caesar to get your appointment of your territory. And your promise to Caesar is, I'll serve you, I'll do but right by you. So a nobleman then, when he leaves to go get a kingdom or a domain, he leaves all of his servants behind. And a trip in the Roman world could be months. So you got to have trustworthy people. I, I'm going to go away. you got to take care of my domain until I get back. And so Jesus tells this story. Um, usually there had to be some sort of payment for that kingdom. You had to pay the king something. Uh, if the kingdom's to come, Jesus is telling a parable that's saying he's going to have to leave and return. He's got to go claim the rights to the kingdom. And in doing that, the followers are supposed to do business till he comes. 
similar but different from the Matthew 25 talents parable. This is the minus parable, not the talents parable. Different thread, different thinking. Luke puts it in a different context. Here we don't, and Jesus probably told this parable multiple times, which is why his disciples remembered it. We don't get the distribution of amounts. In Matthew, the tax collector records how much each person got. And then kind of weighs that out. In this one, we don't get that at all. We just get the the vague description of, you know, he distributes the amounts. Um, It implies an equal expectation to work. Matthew's talking about working with what you get. Um, But in 1818, the question was, what can I do to be saved? The answer was nothing. It's what Jesus can do for us. There's a gift he's going to give. In 1721, where is the kingdom? Jesus explains, it's between believers. It's here with you right now. Verse 18.26 says, Who then can be saved? And the answer through Zacchaeus is, Anybody that lowers themselves and believes and follows Jesus. Anybody can be saved. Lord, I want you. I don't want me anymore. So what should we do? 18.1, pray without ceasing, glorify God, bear witness, and follow God. 18.43. And here in this verse, verse 13 of chapter 19, one more thing we're supposed to do. We're supposed to do business. What is it to make it our business, to learn our business? What's our business? What are we supposed to be doing? So if you're somebody that has humbled yourself before the Lord, you're following Jesus, you're you're gathering with the saints, what else is, what does do business mean? That's the question. I want to do business. What does it look like? Jesus is clearly framing himself here as a returning king. Servant citizens, the veil is getting taken away here. There are two groups of people in this parable. Listen for them. There's the citizens and there's the servants. Servants are people in the master's household. Citizens are people outside the master's household. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. So, and, the, and so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money, and he called to them that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Really interesting split. The king goes off, Jesus goes off for a while, and then you got this division of two groups of people, people that hate the master and people that are called servants of the master. And those two groups of people are there. What's interesting, I think, when the master comes back is he could care less about verse 14. He doesn't even respond or interact with or do anything about the citizens that hate him. His first task is to talk to the people that have served him. The first group of people the master deals with are his servants. Note that the citizens don't get to actually have a say in who rules. They may not want this person to rule, but this person got the right to the kingdom. He rules. So they don't get to make that choice. So verse 13, he calls and he says them. Note that in verse 15, he commands. In verse 14, he doesn't have the authority. In verse 15, he now has the authority in the parable. So he can command. He deals with the servants first, showing his priorities. Verse 16, then then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. A mina is about three months pay, right? So, wow, that's good Good turn on investment. Verse 17, and he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over 10 cities. And the second came, because now he's master of a kingdom. The second came saying, master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. This is incredible. This is very different than Matthew's parable. They've both done well. 
and they're both rewarded. I, I want to take note of that because sometimes we compare each other to each other. They're both good servants. The first one is impressively called well done good servant and the second one he just says you also be over five cities so the first one gets a better praise there's an authority here where the authority that the master has gained is something that he can give to the, his servants because once they become rulers of cities they're not servants anymore but they're still the servant of the master so in an earthly sense they get dominion in a heavenly sense they're still servants of the king that's a domain and the Bible has this territoriality to a spiritual life. Authority is given by God. Initially, God uses parents to have authority over you when you're a child. When you grow up and you're on your own, there, then your authority goes directly connected to God. You leave their household, you enter your own household, you're accountable to God. But parents train you in for that dominion. We Make your bed. That bed is your domain. Clean your dishes. Those dishes you messed up, that's your domain. You know, mow the lawn. We all have control over the lawn, but take your part in maintaining it. So in any given household, there is a responsibility or authority that naturally gets passed on, and this is good. This is a wonderful thing that we see in households happening, is that you teach kids how to take on responsibility, and in that, they're worthy of authority. So when Jesus is talking about you've been faithful in a little, now have authority over more, going from three months wages to controlling cities, that's a massive gain in authority. That's like skipping a few rungs on the ladder, right? So good more, the reward for good work is more work, right? And I think for some people that's like, okay, I don't know if I want to work that hard because the more I do in the kingdom of God, the more responsibility I'm going to have in the kingdom of God. Yeah, and the responsibility is wonderful, and it's beautiful. This is why we teach our kids not to be lazy, because laziness is, is of the enemy. Diligence and work is something of the kingdom. If a kid can't maintain their bedroom, why would God have them maintain a church? Think about it. If one can't faithfully use their God-given gifts in their lives, why would you have them practicing gifts in leadership at a, in, a, in a fellowship? If, if a person can't elevate Jesus' name when they're out in the world with, with non-believers, why would you use that person to be a missionary? If they can't do these basic things in their day-to-day -day life, why would God ever bring them into responsibility and authority within the church? So this is a disposition and an attitude that we kind of have. I would rather take somebody with less ability but faithfulness and diligence and responsibility than somebody that has the God's given gifts to do the greatest thing in the world. Does that make sense? Like, wouldn't you rather have somebody who's faithful and here every week taking care of those kids upstairs versus like, I don't know, who's a great child giver care person? The greatest daycare worker in the world shows up at church tomorrow. I, we would just say, thanks, welcome, be blessed, study the word, hang out with us for six months because we're looking for faithfulness. We're not looking for, for worldly talent. It's an amazing idea. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's first. God gives the gift of authority to people that are responsible with their authority. God is called. God is saved. God has then duties for people to perform or what he told, do business. Use the gifts you've been given by God. It's not do business on your own strength, your own authority. It's not your own agenda. You see people like that coming into the church too. Hey, welcome me to the church. I'm here to do these five things. No, it, that's not what it is. But to be good, 
a decent person and to be faithful, a responsible, reliable person. Week after week, day after day, they know how to manage things. They can take care of business. Second, there's a word also. <laughs> We're seeing decreasing rewards, right? The rewards are, are just or matching what people have done while the Lord was away. And folks, this is a parable for us because right now the Lord's away. And he's given us responsibility to take the kingdom and do business. And while he's away, we're here to do the work. So then another comes, verse 20. It's always the third one that's kind of the lesson. Then another comes saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Wow, ouch. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you because he has the authority to judge. You are a wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not owe. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected my interest? I might have collected it with interest. Okay, this is what Jesus is going to do when he comes and returns. It's the principle of how Jesus is going to act when he returns. Anyone who hides their gift, and folks, like this is a whole other discussion and thematic Bible study. Spiritual gifts in the Bible are a massive topic in the New Testament that he did not leave us with nothing. He left us with gifts. You know, and it's funny when you meet people that are like, I don't have any spiritual gifts, and so I have to work hard at everything. And I have, to do, I have to put effort into everything because I don't have any natural gifts. And then you stop and go, don't you think perseverance is a natural gift? Don't you think working hard at something is what God put in your spirit? It's the super gift because you can work hard and develop any of the others because you have hard work. Not everybody has hard work. Not everybody diligently wakes up in the morning and says, what can I do to improve myself? What a gift. God gives something to everybody that's valuable for the kingdom of God. And when you get to know Jesus and you're walking with Jesus and you can let go of your tax collecting gains from the world, suddenly you're free to bless people. And that's Zacchaeus, man. That's what's pouring out of him. He's just happy to do these things. So this idea of not doing business until the master's comes is actually disobeying the command that we have. Well, I just kept it to myself because I didn't want to offend anybody or bother anybody. Well, that's offensive to your master. He's given you gifts. Excuse number one, fear. I feared, verse 21. Excuse number two, the master's nature and character, deflecting his own disreputability. He puts in, he ascribes something to the master about who he is. Excuse number three, you collect. Well, you're so powerful, why do you need me? If God's so powerful and everybody's going to get saved that God wants saved, why does he need me to do anything? Is that for you to ask, servant? Or are now you being the master and making that decision? Out of your own mouth is what the master says. You're saying things that are convicting you. This guy would rather serve himself than serve his master, and doing nothing, even as a servant, means he's not really a servant. If you're a servant, you obey your master. If you're not a servant, you don't care what the master says. So the master doesn't care about the money. He has a kingdom. It's not about the minus. He owns cities. God doesn't care about your little contribution. He doesn't need it. He wants you to give it so that your character can grow so he can use you in different ways. Does that make sense? He cares about you. He doesn't care about your works. 
but he says to do business because he wants to see your character develop and grow. So he pushes you to do it, not because he needs your special contribution, but because there's a kingdom to build. And he wants you in that kingdom. He cares about your character, not about the, the fruit of your hands. The hateful citizens are completely ignored at this point. They made their disobedience clear. At least they made their disobedience clear. This guy is lukewarm. He calls him master, but then he doesn't act like a servant. And this is the kind of person that we're told is going to get cast spit out by, the, by God. He has no time for these kinds of people. Don't call him your Lord if he's not going to be your Lord. There's a waste of space thing here. You're just sucking air when you do these kinds of things. What will the master do? Verse 24. Here's what he does. And, those, and he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. Take the irresponsibility, the gifts I gave this guy that he's irresponsible with, give it to the responsible guy. And you say, that's not fair. But it is. It's just. I don't know that God is, is proposing fairness here. He's proposing justice. But they said to a master, he has 10 minus. That's not fair. He's got 10 already. For I say to you that to everyone who, has, who will be given from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine, those that did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Verse 27, at the very end, he just gets rid of the people that didn't want to serve him. Here's what's interesting. There's no mention that the third guy doesn't, isn't a servant anymore. It's just a servant that doesn't have authority. And this is a, you say, who's going to get into heaven? Who isn't going to get into heaven? I think this is a really important verse for that. You have three servants. The third servant that didn't do business does not get cast out of the household. And he is not part of the verse 27 people that get slain, which would be the people that go to hell. So he calls him Lord and Master. He's just not very good at it. And there's no reward in it. There's no blessing in being a lukewarm thing. So you have other passages that say lukewarm people will be cast out. And I'm applying lukewarm to this. They would be included in verse 27. But a, a counter argument to that is all that happened to this guy is his gifts were taken away. But he still gets to stay in the household. So this, it's, a, it's a vagary in the word of God, which I think drives us to being personally accountable. God left this kind of vague because he wants us to make a decision for ourselves before our master. He tells us to do business. You have to figure out how to do that business. It's fun when people come up to me as a teacher and they're like, what do you think the Lord wants me to do here? And I'm like, I don't know. If he's not telling you, why would he be telling me? Right? Read the word. Be in the scriptures. That's, you know, when you're in the scriptures, things will hit you and say, boy, I need to do more of that. Which is why we go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Eventually, we're going to hit something that offends you. And your conscience is going to get stirred up. And then it's between you and God. And that's exactly what we're trying to do is I want to get to know the word better. I want to be a good servant. If I have 10 minus, I want to turn those into even more. If God's blessed me with a gift, I want to use it as much as I can. He remains a servant. He's still there, but he has no honor and he has no responsibilities. There's no crowns this guy can lay at his master's feet because even the one he was given gets taken away. Everyone who has will be given Clearly now, this is a material gain parable, but it's a spiritual principle. God will abundantly pour out kingdoms and roles and spiritual cities on people that are faithful in what they've been given. I remember when we were doing Bible study in the nursing home, and they'd be just like, well, we can't even get out of the nursing home. What can we do? And it's like, well, God tells you to read the word of God. 
you don't have a job. You have all day, every day to pour yourself into the word of God. And I tell you, I came back the next week and about half of those people were like, I finished the New Testament. I'm working on the, and they were, they just cranked through it. And you can see the joy in their life, the spiritual awakening that happened with them, you know, and it was just because they're on their last days. They got, they got limited time left. And they're just like, I'm going to be in God's word as much as I can. And then the cool thing is when their grandkids and kids came to visit them, all they wanted to talk about was the scriptures. And they became mighty evangelists from their little rooms. You know, it was awesome to see that happen. And we can talk about it over lunch if you want. But what I thought was really cool is after about a year at that Bible study, it wasn't just the old folks home coming to the Bible study. It was the people that were working there were coming to it. The kids would, because the grandparents, they'd have their kids would show up once every year to visit. And they'd come on during Bible study time. The old folks would pack up their stuff and grab their Bible and leave them. And the kids are like, where are you going? And they're like, I'm going to Bible study. Like, we only get here once a year. Yeah, come to Bible study with me. Or I'll be back in an hour. You know, it was awesome to see that. It was one of the greatest experiences that I think our family ever had. And a couple of them had crushes on Grant, which was hilarious. <laughs> As a gospel, Luke has clearly out outlined what salvation is, and then he clearly gives a justification for us doing business to work for the kingdom. Like, honestly, when people don't understand what God's asked of them, it's, they're not in the word enough. They're not reading what it says. The more we love Jesus, the more we want to do for him. We're never idle. We're always looking for the opportunities. If the kingdom's coming and our king is going to return, what will he find me doing? When he returns, will he even see faithfulness? Will he see dedicated people doing the work? We're all given the same Bible. We're all given the same fellowship because we're here today. We're all given the same number of hours in a day. We've all been given the same amount. What are we going to do with it? And Zacchaeus could say, I'm too short to do anything. But that didn't matter. That just doesn't, the physical stuff isn't part of it. What are we going to do with our time? Verse 27, but bring here those enemies. The citizens just get slain. There is a judgment when the king returns. Jesus comes first to save. He then comes to judge. Everyone answers to the king. All authority is his. He leaves and he comes back. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This parable in Luke matches what Matthew says perfectly. Matthew also says, and puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. When Jesus returns, he will reclaim all earthly authority. There won't be kings. There won't be czars. There won't be princes. There won't be imams. There won't be popes. There will be Jesus. And every other form of authority will disappear. So when people say, which party do you want to vote for? You should know that you're a monarchist, right? You believe Jesus should be king. Regardless of how good of a servant you are, you will answer to Jesus. You will be a citizen of his kingdom, whether or not you like it. If you're his enemy, he won't tolerate you in his kingdom. How could a good and holy God send anybody to hell? He doesn't. You make a choice and you send yourself there. Everyone starts out as being welcomed into the kingdom. It is better to be the least of the servants in the kingdom of heaven and still get in by the skin of your teeth by following the Lord than it is to be somebody who is an enemy of the Lord. In other words, you can come into the kingdom like Zacchaeus. You don't have to do a darn thing. 
just submit yourself and humble yourself to Jesus Christ. I think you're going to get used because the joy of the Lord becomes your strength, becomes the thing that pours out of you. But in the meantime, you're like, man, I'll come to the Lord, but I don't think I have anything to offer. You're right, you don't. He gives you the minus. He gives you the gifts. He gives you the tools. The question is, what kind of servant will you be when you're given an opportunity? Are you going to waste the minus, put it in a bank and hide it? Because God's investing in you. What's he going to get back in return? Are you going to be an also ran like the third guy in our story? Or are you going to be the 10 minus guy that takes that minus and turns it into 10? And the God says, well done, good and faithful servant. And my prayer for everybody in my life is that we're all that people. We are a line of people coming to the judgment phone where he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's another one. Well done, good and faithful servant. Dang, what's up with you Calvary Chapel people? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. But you guys were rocking it in your generation. You didn't care what the world thought. You didn't care what the pressures were. You're going to serve the king every single day the best way you know how. Amen. He ends the trip to Jerusalem uh, that he started back in chapter 9, verse 31. He comes down from the ascension where he reveals himself, and there has been a 10-chapter trip to Jerusalem in the book of Luke. So next we're going to arrive at Jerusalem, and the master will proclaim his authority and the work that we need to do. And in that sense... Again, I say this every week, and I know most of you are following the Lord. If you're not following the Lord today, you need to. Make a decision. Make haste, like Jesus told Zacchaeus. Let him come into your life. Let him come into your heart. Oh, I'm not good. I don't have anything. You're right. That's a true statement. You come before the Lord with nothing to offer, and you just say, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer. I've done nothing good. I've been an enemy of your kingdom. And he says, come down off that high horse and let me come to your house today. Immediately, make haste to do it and jump at it. So if you haven't before given your life to the Lord in that kind of way, let's all bar our heads together and let's say a word of prayer. And you'd say, you'd pray just like Zacchaeus did. You'd climb in the tree and you'd say, Lord, I want to meet you. I want to see you. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come into our hearts. Lord, change me and make me yours. I recognize that you're the king. And Lord, you're coming back to claim your kingdom and your dominion. And Lord, I want to be your servant. Lord, if there's any wicked way in me, help me to be Zacchaeus. Help me to be pure. Work it out of me. But Lord, I come to you as a sinner. Have mercy on me. Don't punish me. Lord, I lean on your mercy because it's all I have. And in that, Lord, help me to be just a servant of you. If you prayed that prayer and that, and you sincerely are praying that in your heart right now, you're, you're about to see changes in your life. You're going to see freedom from the sins that you've been tied to. And you're going to see a hope for something new growing in your heart because the Lord also promises that he will create a clean spirit in you. And he'll renew in you that spirit each day. So our duty is to follow and do the business he's given us. Lord, we offer ourselves to you. We pray to you. We ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Luke, who wrote this down, wrote down what he saw, wrote down what he experienced. We thank you we have that record before us. And when we just read it plainly, it speaks right to our heart. Lord, change us and mold us and make us yours. And as we fellowship today, as we walk in your ways, 
Uh, Lord, give us strength to do that. Give us guidance, give us counsel, and show us what business you want us to do this week. I pray in a blessing and an anointing of the Holy Spirit on each person in this room. May you lift them up, may you renew them, may you give them peace, and may you give them rest. In Jesus' name, amen.